Hello and welcome back. You're listening to the ACAP Coffee Break with Meg Murray, a podcast from the Association for Community Affiliated Plans. Thanks for listening. Today's episode features Doug Wirth, CEO of Amita Care and a member at large of ACAP's board of directors. Here's Meg. Well, Doug, welcome to the ACAP Coffee Break. These have been fun conversations with our CEOs, and I wanted to introduce you to our audience. Doug Worth is the CEO of Amita Care in New York City. It is a special needs plan in New York parlance, which I know is different than some people. I myself sometimes am confused because uh, special needs plans are also a Medicare term. Um, but Doug has been a long-term member of ACAP, very um, influential member of our association and currently serves on the board of directors. So welcome, Doug. Thank you so much for having me, Meg. Glad to be with you. Great. Well, the thing that we always like to start off with and learn more about our uh, members and our um, folks that we're interviewing is what drove you to come to healthcare? Why, why healthcare? You're a smart guy. You could be in any field. Why did you choose ours? Well, thank you um, for the, the kudos of being smart. I think, you know, the road was a, a bit of a windy road. I mean, I think as a young person, Really, my work started out in the Methodist Church, uh, really about community service and ministry. And, you know, fond memory I have is my mom taking me to a fish and loaves program at a local YMCA with our church, where we served food to people who are under-resourced, veterans, homeless people, you know, families with limited resources, and the money ran out at the end of the month. And so, for me, that was the earliest experience of, you know, discovering that, um, you know, there's a shared humanity, right? And, and the learning about people's lives uh, firsthand was particularly powerful for me and developed this appreciation for basic human needs, right? Food, housing, and healthcare. The next, I, I think the, the next piece uh, was really around my early work in homelessness and food security. I built a five-tier homeless shelter system in the Midwest with uh, initial Stuart B. McKinney funding. And the importance of basic needs as building blocks to health and well-being. Uh, and then I did uh, an HIV pre and post-test counselor uh, stint while I was in uh, my master's program, and I watched people die alone, which really uh, impressed upon me how precious life is. You know, as an undergraduate uh, and graduate social worker, you focus on direct services. But my uh, mentor, Dr. Betty Baer, uh, used to drill into us the importance of working on the macro level. If you want systemic, sustainable change, versus uh, a Band-Aid approach. And for that purpose, uh, Amedicare was founded by community health providers uh, and, and we came into being. Medicaid really is one of the greatest vehicles to support community wellness and go beyond survival to, to living well. So, um, you know, I was not destined for safety net health plans. I was a provider first. Um, and a community organizer, and but I understood the tremendous opportunities that safety net health plans play in communities all across this country, and so I said yes, and and I haven't looked back. Right, and that was about fifteen years ago. You've been there. 
So you were the founding CEO? I was the second CEO. The, the, the company was uh, really at a critical point. And uh, whether we would go forward or not, as you point out, a Medicaid SNP, it's a much smaller program than the Medicare, uh, the world. Um, and our members said, you can't close down my health plan. You, you know, I need this. And so the providers and I uh, redesigned the program. And now we're the largest Medicaid SNP in New York State with close to 10,000 members, all of whom are living with multiple chronic conditions. Well, you, you bring up two themes that we've heard a lot on these podcasts. One is the importance of moms, which I always like to hear as a mom of two boys and two teenagers. And that's come up several times about how important the, 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 their moms um, showed them the world and you know, encouraged them to make a difference in it. And also social determinants of health and just how important that is. And, and your plan in particular has been so great about addressing that. But um, all of our plans are really dedicated to um, addressing the, the upstream issues. Um, so one of the things you have done recently, which we have been watching and, and just so impressed with was your campaign against the drug carve out in Medicaid managed care in New York state. And, and you actually had a great victory. Um, so I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about how you did that and, and what the implications of that are for your plan. Absolutely. I, I think it's something we all need to pay attention to across the country. So for us, people living with multiple chronic conditions, HIV, serious mental illness, addiction disorders, uh, cancer, hypertension, diabetes, the pharmacy benefit is really an integral critical component of whole person care. And so it doesn't make sense to us to strip the pharmacy benefit away from health plans who are working to coordinate care, give access, to life-saving uh, medications. And for us, the trips to the pharmacy counter actually reduce and eliminate costly trips to the ER or hospital stays. And if our members are disconnected uh, from services um, and, and there are interruptions in life-saving medications and we can't solve those problems in real time for them, we take that very seriously. And so we, um, we got involved uh, from the very beginning uh, in community organizing. Now, I already told you I have a community organizing background. Um, advocacy is a core value. It's central to our work. Um, and we don't think we can do compelling, uh, effective work without a clear uh, community organizing strategy. And so the carve out was averted really because of a coordinated multi-sector advocacy effort. Voices from the community, our members, providers, uh, we engaged unions, community-based organizations, and even faith leaders. Um, and what we produced were about 5,000 letters uh, to the governor and the legislature. Um, we had health plan associations speaking out um, 25 faith leaders signed on to, uh, hey, don't take um, these benefits away from our community and particularly the 340B revenue uh, that would go to community health centers in communities of color. We actually, during COVID, we held car rallies. Um, we drove past, uh, you know, the governor's uh, mansion and honked horns and and actually got the police to escort us out of the area. So um, we were creative, social distance, 
uh, community organizers. But you know, we also held Zoom meetings with legislators. We had a very organized coalition media strategy. Um, and you know, we worked sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes out front. Uh, and we drove op-eds and articles from cross-sector spoke spokespersons and members, members of our plan spoke out saying they didn't want to get in line in a six million person uh, phone center uh, at somewhere with the state or a vendor. They, they wanted to be able to speak with us. So, um, you know, ultimately 58 state legislators signed on to legislation delaying the carve out. We had the health committee chairs um, speaking to the Department of Health, calling for a delay. 44 legislators called the governor. Um, we had champions in both houses of the state legislature. Our city council submitted uh, past resolutions calling on the state to delay the carve out. And then, you know, we were fast and firm during budget negotiations to make sure uh, that the uh, that the carve out didn't go through. And thankfully, we were successful and uh, really appreciative of our efforts to be a critical voice in the community with the community and with our members um, to support the safety net. And so the status now is it's is totally dead or you're going to have to fight it? Is it is it temporary? The uh, the, the legislature, uh, we, we had a bill uh, to uh, essentially walk away uh, and the compromise was a two year delay bill. And so really the work will go on now uh, behind the scenes to communicate with the state. And ultimately, uh, we think that the state is really driving towards a financial goal. Uh, and so, you know, what we're doing in coalition now is talking about other methods and avenues to achieve those goals, those budget goals, without eliminating whole person care coordinated by safety net health plans like ours. Well, it's a really impressive win. I know a lot of states have been looking at the carve out and, and in some cases they have done it. Um, most recently, California, though, also has put it on hold. So maybe the the, uh, the tide is turning a little bit, but you've definitely been one of the, the leaders in this and, and just hearing the um, the uniqueness and the creativity of your advocacy is is great to hear. Um, and I'm sure you're bringing those same skills to the other fight that you've been fighting for a long time um, is the fight to end HIV. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of your role and your plans role. Absolutely. I'll just mention that on the ACAP website is a whole host of materials that we used in New York. So if there are other plans listening and you want resources, that's available on, on the ACAP website. Um, so the HIV fight, the fight to end the HIV epidemic in New York. I was, was blessed to be a member of the 63-person task force here in New York uh, called by the governor to develop the New York State blueprint to end the epidemic here. It was launched in 2015. And so special needs plans were specifically designed to meet the unique needs of people affected by HIV, serious mental illness and addictions. And so, um, you know, the percentages of our members today who are virally suppressed, meaning the HIV uh, virus is so low in the body that it can't be transmitted to other people, 
We've increased that from 60% to 80% um, since 2006. And, and that's important because it means that people are living longer, healthier lives and that they can get about the business of going to school, going back to work, um, being in relationships. And uh, so, so this is central to, to what we do. We've also, in that process, discovered other chronic conditions. So hepatitis C um, has been a big killer of people with a compromised immune system. And so we've been successful in leading the fight and have, have actually cured 2,000 Amedicare members of, of hepatitis C. And for people who are HIV positive, being cured of something is, is a radical uh, experience. Ultimately, I would say our goal is about getting our members in care, staying in care, uh, taking their medications so that they can be virally suppressed uh, or staying HIV negative. So we serve uh, homeless individuals uh, and persons of transgender, uh, gender non-conforming, non-binary experience who are HIV negative. And so we've been really instrumental in helping those two uh, groups have access to PrEP, which is a, an HIV prevention uh, tool that's uh, super, super effective. Um, and I think, you know, we, we are a leader in providing access to comprehensive gender affirming care for the transgender community. Uh, our members of trans experience who are HIV positive, 94% of them are virally suppressed. And about 25% of uh, those members of trans experience have gotten access to, to PrEP. So if you think about HIV, HIV has really all, always been about population health. Um, you've got to combat isolation and poverty. Um, you need to address food security and housing stability issues. People need to have a medical provider that they trust um, and who spends time with them so that they understand what's going on in their bodies. And, and really as a health plan, that's our job to make sure that those options exist for our members and then support providers in uh, partnering with the member to achieve their health goals. There's a lot we can do in between medical visits as a health plan. And that's what we spend a, a lot of our time making sure that people have food, their home is stable, um, that their benefits uh, are maintained. And, uh, and then we do healthy things like sacred African dance and uh, Zumba classes and learn how to cook healthy meals together. It's really what we've created here is a wellness community for people living with multiple chronic conditions. And I'm sure the fact that you had such a strong community probably helped in your outreach to make sure that that community was also vaccinated. Um, but can you talk a little bit about how you, um, for the folks that maybe especially are harder to reach, the um, people who are not um, housed and things like that? How yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, really critical because the same uh, communities that face health disparities in HIV care are the same ones that were hardest hit uh, by COVID, right? Uh, our communities of, of color, the, the African-American community, Latinx and Asian Pacific Islander communities. So 
Um, one of the things that happened here in New York was that the state was using CDC data that was limited and, and actually outdated. Um, and so the CDC had concluded that there was insufficient evidence to establish people living with HIV as being placed at higher risk. Um, and so they had lower, initially lower priority for vaccine access. And so that completely drew our attention. We organized again in the community with advocates and our, our members and got on the horn with uh, state policymakers and actually spoke out about this also in the, in the media. Um, and there actually was more uh, significant data that was available here in New York. And so ultimately we led the fight to get people uh, living with HIV placed in group 1B at that, at that second priority uh, level um, after uh, essential workers and healthcare workers. Um, but our other work is really focused on um, FQHCs and getting vaccines out to black indigenous people of color communities. Uh, and so we've done a tremendous amount of member outreach and education campaigns and we're working with the community-based organizations that we partner with to get the word out to Black, Latinx, and API communities um, where there may be, may, may be barriers uh, to vaccine uh, access. And so fundamentally, we saw our role as a health plan in supporting and building trust in the communities that we serve so that people went into their providers uh, and got vaccinated. And we're really proud of that. So um, what are you hearing from people when they say that they don't want to get vaccinated? What, what are some of the reasons and, and how are you helping to address that? I think that for the most common uh, uh, issue is really a, a distrust of something new. And so, uh, and there's a lots of history, right, around not trusting communities, not trusting um, healthcare and vaccinations and these kinds of, uh, of new treatments. But what we have done, though, is to remind people of the conversations around new treatments of HIV. Um, and so uh, in the process, right, lots of people, my belief is behind every no, at some point there's a yes. But you need to continue having the conversations and listening and accepting where people are, but then not stop, you know, don't stop talking with them about their health and well-being. And, and that's what we've done is to continue to engage with members, listen to their concerns, share information with them, and then say, it's it's okay that you're choosing, you're not having the vaccine today, but you know what? I care about you. And, you know, I just want you to know, I'm going to come back and ask you where you are, you know, three weeks from now. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's, it's also that human to human being conversation that makes a difference in people's lives. The rush to get everybody vaccinated can feel like somebody else's goal. But when you sit down and you talk with members, and you listen, people understand that they're cared about for who they are, um, and, and then all kinds of new possibilities open up. Hmm. Wow. 
Well, that's um, it's great to hear that the thought about that you come back after a couple of weeks that people things change and people ruminate on it and. Uh, so, um, well, your, your work is so um, important, but I'm sure also very stressful and probably takes an emotional toll for some of the things that you see. Although um, I know with your Zumba classes and I'm on your, your distribution list, so I see all the fun things too <laughs> that you do at Amidacare. But so what, what do you, um, we always end our podcast asking people, what are they reading now that maybe helps them contextualize their work or escape from their work in some cases? Well, I, you know, escaping uh, from the work or, you know, setting a boundary around it, uh, I put my hands in the earth and I, I like to grow flowers. I had an awesome uh, batch of uh, peonies this year, which I was very, very thankful for. But on the reading side, you know, for us, um, the whole uh, call, national call around racial justice um, is something that um, affected me deeply. And so I think one of the books that I, I, I've read and uh, actually our executive team read White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo uh, together. Um, and it was a really powerful experience where I, I think it's really about stepping into the responsibility that comes with being a person of privilege in this country. And, and so as a team, uh, both privilege in terms of uh, uh, race and ethnicity or position or income, you know, we really dove in to having a conversation about how uh, racism and uh, injustice lives um, you know, within uh, within our health plan, within our community. Um, and, you know, I think as health plan leaders, we have the organizational power and the privilege to confront structural racism in our own organizations and in, in our own communities. Um, you know, if it lives in our country and our nation, racial injustice, then it must live in our own organizations. And so, you know, this to me feels like um, a moral imperative and, uh, and a, I wanna be part of the solution. And I think safety net health plan leaders um, are very powerful, smart, um, caring people in their communities. And I think, it, you know, if we, if we all say yes to the racial justice, the fight for racial justice in this country, um, I believe together we can advance that goal. And that to me um, is a life well uh, worth living. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing your experience and your thoughts with us. And um, I know that uh, you're not only a gardener, um, but you're a wonderful photographer of flowers. And you have a book that uh, focuses on that, which is on my coffee table at my office and brightens my office. Um, so I hope that that gives you some, obviously gives you joy, but also hopefully renews your spirit to be able to keep fighting these fights that you talked about. And you're an inspiration to me personally, as well as to the other ACAPers um, both staff and, and the, the members. So thank you for spending um, a little time with us this morning on the, your coffee break. And um, we hope to uh, hear uh, more about your work in the future.
Be well. Thanks, Meg. Love ACAP. Go ACAP. Thanks for listening. You can find Doug's book recommendations and others on our Goodreads bookshelf. You'll find the link in the description of this podcast. Our next episode features Michael Schrader, who has led three different ACAP plans and currently serves as the CEO of Health Plan of San Joaquin. Don't miss it. You can find and subscribe to the ACAP Coffee Break wherever you get your podcasts. And when you do, give us a shout on Twitter using the hashtag ACAP Coffee Break. We'll put you in a drawing for a Starbucks gift card. So the next time you tune in, your coffee's on us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.